Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college, or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, July 25th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out why the state attorney general is suing a student loan company. Then, what's next for sports gambling now that it's legal in Mississippi? And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we'll learn how a campaign designed to educate women about their risk for breast cancer and early detection hopes to save lives. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's Attorney General and the Mississippi Center for Justice are suing the nation's largest student loan servicing company for misleading practices. Attorney General Jim Hood says Naviant, a company that services student loans, is alleged to have harmed thousands of Mississippi student loan borrowers in violation of the Mississippi Consumer Protection Act. He says the practices, like steering borrowers to postpone payments, allows interest to compound and raises the overall cost of the loan, increasing Naviant's profits. He says his office and the public interest law firm filed a lawsuit last week to fight for the thousands of Mississippians who were financially affected from 2000 to present. We filed an action against a company called Naviant, and they loan money to students uh, to go to college on. And um, what really caught my attention about this particular company was that their CEO said uh, that uh, anybody who who can uh, breathe and blow moisture on a mirror uh, should get a loan. They were scattering loans out there everywhere. They didn't care whether these kids were going to be able to graduate or not. Mississippi has the fourth highest default rate of student loans of any state in the union. So they were targeting Mississippi students as well as nationally to loan them money, and they knew that they couldn't uh, discharge student loans in bankruptcy. Uh, That was changed during the Bush administration to prohibit uh, the default or uh, people going through bankruptcy and washing those loans away. So they basically had indentured servants for the rest of their lives. So they didn't care, you know, if they were going to be able to pay them off or not. A lot of them were high-risk loans. In fact, uh, the the graduation rates at some of these private colleges they were going to were less than 50%. So it's sort of like the mortgage crisis where the companies were loaning money to people that they knew that could not pay it back. And then they were selling those those loans and they didn't care. They made money on the the fees. Don't most students, if they're getting loans, get them to the federal government? There is the, the student loan process, but these companies were 
trying to get their numbers up so that they were a preferred a lender. That status with a university, if you became a preferred lender, it made it a lot easier. So they used subprime loans to get people to uh, take out these loans. They became they, they got a preferred status. Their overall package was making money. So overall, there was there was it was money in it. You know, they wouldn't do it just to give away money, but they were making money. But by doing that and becoming a preferred lender, that's how they made more money. The most egregious part of it, though, uh, in spite of the quote from the CEO, basically saying if you could breathe, you needed a loan. That was what he was trying to get his people to sell. You know, uh, these these loans to people um, is that they didn't uh, care about what. What happened to the people uh, for the rest of their lives? I mean, those loans were uh, hung on these young people who made decisions. I remember when I had to borrow money to go to law school. Thank goodness my parents were able to help me get through undergrad, but I didn't know how. I just needed the money. I didn't care who gave it to me, you know, how I got it. Um, but, uh, you know, whether it was, whether it was a, f- a federal uh, student loan uh, backed by uh, the federal government or otherwise. And, you know, those are decisions that people make when they're in need and taking advantage of, of young people in that position. Many of us can remember, you know, when we went to school and had to borrow money, uh, just, just needing it and not maybe making the right decision. But the most egregious thing they did, instead of telling them you can pay uh, based upon what you're making and go on and start paying down this note, they would steer them to a loan forbearance program which meant that the interest continued to compound on on the loan. When I w- went to work at the Mississippi Supreme Court, uh, I came out, I was an intern in AG's office, I went to work at the Mississippi Supreme Court. For that year, I was making about 28000 a year, I think, back then, um, and I could not pay my student loans. So it was great. They let me just, just skip a year, um, and, and it, it compounded. But I was lucky. Mine was like 21000 you know, a lot of these students, uh, that's that's the average, national average of, of how much is borrowed. But a lot of students have 70000 in student loans. So those that interest piles up. So instead of steering them in the right direction, when a student started asking questions about, well, can I just pay based upon my salary? They were automatically steering them over into loan forbearance, which meant that they, they didn't have to pay uh, for a while. And instead of going on a program where they pay just a small percentage of their their income, that was the intent to, you know, allow students to uh, pay based upon their income until they started making more and they could pay more. What's illegal about this? Well, it's not any kind of criminal illegal actions. What, what we're saying, though, is a violation of our Consumer Protection Act uh, because it's a bait and switch. They drew students in and loaned them money they knew that they couldn't pay back. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's okay to dupe people like that. I mean, that's business, you know. But taking advantage of these these students, knowing that they probably would not graduate and that they would be an indentured servant for the rest of their lives, we think that's a violation of the Consumer Protection Act. Four other states have filed this suit. The National Consumer uh, CFPB, Consumer Financial Credit Bureau, I think is what it's called, filed a suit also. So there's a suit by a federal agency, and there are also suits filed by four other states. What court is it filed in? It's filed in Chantry Court in Hines County. And what we're asking for, we're not asking to give money back to those students. I mean, th- those, those students have their own private uh, possible causes of action. We're trying to stop that type of activity in Mississippi so that they're taking advantage of these students that they know can't pay these loans back. And there are penalties on the Consumer Protection Act. 
that we want to deter that type of conduct for any other companies that may be doing that, as well as disgorge them of their illegal profits. Uh, normally, when I file a suit, I don't really do a press release on it. This is unusual because in in this situation, we want to hear from those students. We have combined our efforts with the Mississippi Center for Justice. They've also been looking at this issue of student loans for quite some time. This activity occurred in 2009 is primarily when most of this occurred. But we're working with the Mississippi Center for Justice, and we're trying to find those students that have borrowed money from uh, Navient. The lawsuit also names a subsidiary, Navient Solutions, and Sally May Bank, alleging widespread abuse across all aspects of its student loan businesses, including misleading borrowers about payment options that resulted in higher monthly payments that many couldn't afford. Ashlyn Booker is a graduate of Tougaloo College and Belhaven University, still paying student loans. My initial concern was that, as an adult, trying to backtrack the original loan amount um, was very difficult because naturally I wanted to know, like, how much did I owe originally? Um, how much have I paid since I started repayment? And because my loans were transferred to different servicers after they originated with Sally May, they basically told me that they were not responsible for maintaining any records on my previous payments or balance amount, and they didn't have any information prior to receiving my account. So all they could provide me was the information that they had at the time of transfer. So I couldn't do an audit of myself and what had happened from the time my loans originated to the point of which they were transferred several times. And then naturally, my next concern was that I didn't really see my balances decreasing. And, I, of course, I was paying with the anticipation that they would decrease over time. And I understand the accrual of interest and how that works, but for some reason it just nothing was adding up and I didn't have the historical documentation that I needed to do the research that I needed to do to figure out, you know, what I owed or anything. Like, I just, I just didn't know how to do or what to do or who to talk to. So when you first got out of school, can we assume that you took maybe a postponement before you started paying so you could get on your feet? I believe I did exhaust the grace period that I, that you received after graduation, and then I began my payment schedule. But you didn't know what the interest was that had accrued over that time or act, what your actual balance was? Correct. When you said that you got serious about looking into this, what concerned you about what you found out? Was that at the top of my documentation, it said that my loan originated in January of 2009. And at that time, the balance was $47,000 or so. And as of 2017, my balance was around 41000 So that was like a difference of about $6,000. How do you feel about this? What What is your concern? My concern is that as an adult now uh, that's very financially conscious and I'm very punctual with my bills and how I spend my money, uh, I expect things to be paid off at some point. You know, I've, I've successfully paid off a car. I'm successfully paying off my mortgage, and I see those balances decrease, but I don't see my student loan balances decrease. And 
it makes me feel like I'm going to be an elderly woman paying for my college education. I want it to be paid off. And if that means the obvious that I can pay more, I know, but I should be able to pay it off with my current schedule, um, I would have hoped. And we're talking about $47,000, which is equivalent to a luxury car that could be easily financed in six years. And I was told as of last year, when I did re- when I did request that documentation, I was told that I still had 19 years to go. In 19 years, I should be enjoying life at free, enjoying my, my adult children, not still paying student loans. Well, Ashlyn Booker, we appreciate you. Thank you. Booker's loans were originally through Sally May. Four other states are also suing Navient. General Hood says the company's conduct is estimated to have added $4 billion to the national student loan debt. If you believe you're a victim of deceptive business practices, you can fill out a form on the Mississippi Center for Justice website, and a representative may contact you for further information. Coming up, what's next for sports gambling now that it's legal in the state of Mississippi? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you miss anything on MPB Think Radio, you can always stay up to date by logging on to our website at mpbonline.org or use your mobile device and download our MPB public media app. This is MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Sports gambling is now legal in the state of Mississippi. This after regulations adopted by the Mississippi Gaming Commission took effect this weekend. Casinos and regulators are now a step closer to launching opportunities in their venues, but officials say there's still work to be done. Alan Godfrey, executive director of the State Gaming Commission, tells MPB's Ashley Norwood Mississippians could be able to place their first wagers by September. Talks about uh, structuring wagers, suspicious wagers, reserve requirements. It doesn't detail all the different type of bets you can do. It just says you know, there, there are certain bets you can make, and there are some that ex- are excluded, like amateurs. But uh, you know, the uh, the properties will have to submit their catalog of, of wagers as to what they want to wager on and the commission would have to accept or deny those. About how many casinos have applied for illegal sports betting? Uh, 18 out of the 28. What do you expect um, to occur before sports betting is actually happening? Well, we've got a couple of things. We've got our side of the, of the plate, and we're reviewing uh, internal controls, looking at uh, uh, their submissions. Um, we've got to go out and evaluate, uh, make certain they have adequate staff, on site uh, that's knowledgeable in the sports sports uh, writing uh, area or sports book. And then the properties have to complete their renovations and they've got to get their software, their platforms ready, and they're just not ready yet. And then some of them have to have some, some of the platform platform providers have to get licensed and that just hasn't occurred yet. So do you expect everything to be up and rolling by the coming NFL season? Now, that's on them. Uh, I would say from from the commission standpoint that we should have everyone, a vast majority of people licensed to serve these properties. Now, whether they get up before 
football season is up to them. But I feel like you will have a significant no significant number of properties offering sports wagering before football season. Now, sports betting revenue, um, is that going to differ from regular gaming revenue? Currently, it does not. Uh, if the legislature chooses to, to make a distinction between the two, that would be up to them. But right now, it's treated just like any other gaming revenue. All right. Alan Godfrey is the executive director of the Mississippi Gaming Association. Alan, thank you again so much for your time. You're welcome, Alan. In a recent interview, Governor Phil Bryant said he'll likely call a special legislative session in August. He expects lawmakers to discuss whether sports betting revenue and other funds will be used for infrastructure projects. It'll be a number of revenue uh, measures, and those two, uh, both the sports gaming and Internet sales tax, will be a part of it. Uh, There will be a state lottery, more than likely, included in that call. So we are now looking at a scheduling time. A U.S. Supreme Court ruling in May largely legalized sports gambling. State regulations specify that betting on any pro, college, or Olympic sport will be confined to the casino's property. Coming up, we'll learn how a campaign designed to educate women about their risk for breast cancer and early detection hopes to save lives. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. I have a relative who had kidney stones, my mother, in fact. Then I had a brother who had kidney stones, and I'm just wondering if that runs in the family a lot. Yeah, it can. And again, if you live in the South, every if you're outside, everybody's at risk for kidney stones, but some families do have more than others. My sister has had kidney stones. I've had a couple other family members. I have never, thankfully, had a kidney stone. Some people excrete through their kidneys. They filter out a little bit more calcium. So those families are a little bit more at risk for that. If you have a disorder that's causing increased amounts of calcium in your bloodstream, again, calcium's needed. But if you're getting too much of it, then that could put you at risk for kidney stones. There may be some other conditions where you have other stones. So, you know, there's struvite stones, there's uh, oxalic acid, there's all kinds of different kinds of things that your kidneys normally secrete that if, they, if they're secreting too much of it, it sort of overpowers the amount of urine, the amount of water. It's just like if you were dissolving salt or if you were dissolving sugar in a liquid in, in water. Eventually, if you pour too much of it in there, it'll come out a solution. And that's exactly what's happening in the urine is your body is excreting too much of it or you're not excreting enough water to keep up with that. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Live healthy, live blue. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Black women in the U.S. are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. That's according to breast cancer organization Susan G. Komen. They say black women are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer younger, at later stages, and with more aggressive forms of the disease, limiting treatment. 
recruitment options. To combat the disparity, the organization is pushing the Know Your Girls campaign. They say it's designed to educate and inspire black women to understand their risk for breast cancer and take charge of their breast health. Dr. Lori Wilson is with the Howard University College of Medicine. Nikia Hammonds is a breast cancer survivor. They tell us more about the health disparity. There are other things that can play a role into uh, why dying from the disease occurs at a different and higher rate, and that is quality access to care. It is knowing your history. It's healthy lifestyle. It's a multitude of things that this campaign really gets to the heart of. You have to talk about it. You have to know your risk. You have to be prepared so that you can have that individualized discussion with your doctor. Nakia, when you were diagnosed with breast cancer, were you prepared? Did you feel informed? Oh, absolutely not. My journey started when I was just 16 years old. I was a sophomore in high school, no family history of breast cancer, but I did notice something suspicious in my body. I talked with my mom about it, and soon after we went to the doctor, found out it was aggressive breast cancer, 16. So I feel like I'm really the walking evidence of the benefits of early detection and just knowing your own normal, knowing your girls. And my journey has spanned ever since then, even 18 years later at 34. You know, sometimes we tend to brush it off once we reach that five-year mark as, oh, we're all in the clear. But 18 years later, in the opposite breast, it reoccurred. Uh, But I really felt like I was even more in the driver's seat that time because I was very informed of my options. I had more tools at my discretion, and now I stand a two-time 24-year survivor of breast cancer at only age 40 uh, because I was able to know my girls, have healthy conversations with my physicians, and take action. Dr. Wilson, when is a person most likely to develop breast cancer? Is there sort of a target age? So let's talk about breast cancer in women. You know, when we think about breast cancer, being a woman and um, aging is the number one risk factors for breast cancer. The age that we usually think of all comers is about age 61. So that's kind of where we expect. Um, When we think about black women only, it's about age 57. So it is a disease that typically happens after menopause. But when it happens in younger women, it often is more aggressive and it often um, is a later stage. And so we have to be thoughtful that any change in our body is something that needs to be addressed It needs to be um, not just something that we know about, but something that we act upon. And that discussion then happens with our healthcare provider and our doctor to make sure that any new change is a change that we find out about. Talk about some of those changes. How might someone be alarmed by something they find in their breasts? If I can speak to that, sometimes we just associate breast cancer with lumps. But it can often be something as simple as the dimpling of the skin, uh, reddening uh, of the skin color, uh, inward um, of the nipple. Um, It it can look different ways for different people. So I think the main important thing for us to remember is abnormality. Whatever looks different 
from how it looked yesterday or a week ago. At the first sign of abnormality, knowing your normal, knowing your girls, uh, helps to at least get you started with finding information and resources that can help. You know, in my my practice, my happiest conversation is a woman who comes in, brings um, a abnormality to my attention, and we get to find out together that it's not something that is breast cancer. That is the best visit. And so women should not feel that is an imposition to have that visit, to have that discussion, and then follow through with something that they know is different. Dr. Wilson, what are some tips for women to avoid getting breast cancer? So when we think about um, things that we can be in control of, there are things that we can't. We can't be in control of our gender. We can't be in control oftentimes of our family history, those sorts of things. But we can be in control of our healthy lifestyles. So that means exercising. That means um, uh, thinking about our diet. That means also thinking about our alcohol consumption. It's thinking about self-care. And it's thinking about the things that you uh, should know about your genes, And then making sure that you have something like knowyourgirls.org to turn to, to know what to do with that information. Nakia Hammonds-Blakely is a breast cancer survivor, and Dr. Lori Wilson is with Howard University and Hospitals College of Medicine. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank Thank you. To learn more about the campaign or about breast cancer risk factors and breast health, visit knowyourgirls.org. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Fix It 101. Then at 10, Everyday Tech. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Listen to MPB News on all of your devices. Just download the MPB Public Media app or tell your smart speaker, play MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. 